Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Improved Outcomes in Metastatic CRPC with PSMA Directed Diagnostics and Therapies is provided by Axis. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this educational activity titled Improved Outcomes in Metastatic Castration-Resistant Prostate Cancer with PSMA-Directed Diagnostics and Therapies. I am Dr. Ayşe Tuba-Kendi, Professor in Radiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm joined today by Dr. Oliver Sartor, Medical Director at Tulane Cancer Center, and Associate Dean for Oncology at Tulane University in New Orleans, Louisiana. First, disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. I'll start today by reviewing Teranostics, prostate-specific membrane antigen, or PSMA, and PSMA imaging in prostate cancer. The outline of my talk will be discussion of concept of teranostics or teragnostics. We will talk about appropriate use of PSMA agents. We will compare PSMA imaging agents and understand role of PSMA imaging before radioligand therapy. And I will also do a brief review about alpha emitters. First, what is teranostics or teragnostics? It is actually a combination of two words, therapy and diagnostics. Which term is better? In a recent article, the authors asked the same question to a Greek linguistics professor, Dr. Babinitos. According to Dr. Babinitos, teragnostics is the better word to use, as linguistically, it is the actual combination of therapy and diagnostics. Invert teranostics. Terra means hunting, not therapy. I also asked this question to one of my colleagues from medical oncology, Dr. Levantikos. He is originally from Greece. He mentioned that Terra is the name of an island, also known as Santorini Island. And Terranostics may mean disease of Santorini Island as well. We continue to use both terms and actually teranostics more than teragnostics. Maybe it is easier to say or we get used to that term more. How it works? First, you need a vector that could identify the tumor. This is mostly done by having a small peptide or a ligand that can identify targets, receptors, overpopulated or more specific to the tumor. By attaching this peptide to an imaging radionuclide, you form the imaging vector. If patient has abundance of tumor cells that could be identified by this imaging vector, you can consider treating patient with a therapy vector. This time, you have a radionuclide attached to the peptide or ligand with high energy that will destroy the tumor cell. Overall, you can define this concept simply as you treat what you see. Let's briefly talk about prostate cancer. 
Prostate cancer is the most common cancer diagnosed in men and second leading cause of cancer mortality in U.S. Currently available treatment landscape includes radical prostatectomy and radiation therapy when disease is local, hormonal therapy with androgen deprivation during hormone-sensitive period, chemotherapy, androgen receptor pathway inhibitors, immunotherapy, radium-223, PARP inhibitors are other forms of therapies mainly used at castration-resistant advanced stages. Unfortunately, these therapies, including chemotherapy, have survival benefit less than five months in advanced metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer stage. In addition, chemotherapy comes with significant side effects and it is not a walk in the park for patients. There is an urgent need for more effective therapies, especially at metastatic castration-resistant stage. Concept of Theranostics works best when there is a specific target, and PSMA is a great example for that. PSMA is a cell surface enzyme, also called glutamate carboxypeptidase or folate hydrolase, and it is overexpressed at most of prostate cancer cells. PSMA mostly has low expression at normal tissues, which is a great advantage. That is why PSMA is a highly attractive target for both imaging and therapy. PSMA imaging and therapy work with lock and key system. PSMA ligand can identify PSMA receptor on the cell surface like a key. For imaging, you form a vector with an imaging agent like gallium-68 or F18. If there are cancer cells with PSMA expression, then you can use therapy vector by using lutetium, a beta emitter with favorable characteristics for radionuclide therapy. Let's now talk about why do we need PSMA imaging. What is the advantage over currently available conventional imaging like CT. According to a multi-center Australian-based study called ProPSMA, PSMA imaging performs with 27% more accuracy compared to conventional imaging. There is also less exposure to radiation, higher reporter agreement with greater treatment impact. As you can see from this example, PSMA imaging can identify foci of metastasis that are not identifiable at CT. Another recently published study, CONDOR, is a phase three single arm study assessing diagnostic performance and safety of PYL PSMA PET in patients with suspected biochemical recurrence who were negative or equivocal at conventional imaging, including Flociclovin PET-CT, C11, choline PET-CT, MRI, CT, and bone scan. Study population was 208 men. Correct localization rate, or CLR, was 85 to 87%. A change in management after PSMA PET-CT was 63.9%. This image from Condor study shows correct localization rate or CLR 
and detection rates by baseline PSA levels for each group of three readers provided. Overall, we can come to conclusion that PSMA imaging has high detection rate and diagnostic accuracy compared to conventional imaging. In addition, it results in more frequent change in management plans, and it is the imaging tool for assessing patients for eligibility for PSMA radioligand therapy. Current indications for PSMA PET-CT is nicely summarized at Society of Nuclear Medicine Molecular Imaging Appropriate Use Criteria, updated in March 2022. Main appropriate use areas are newly diagnosed unfavorable intermediate, high-risk patients, patients with biochemical recurrence after radical prostatectomy or radiation therapy, and for review of patients for eligibility for PSMA-targeted therapy. Now we have support and guidelines to use PSMA imaging. We need to decide which PSMA imaging agent to choose, or do we need to choose? There are PSMA imaging agents at clinical use and at clinical trials or at development. Currently, Gallium-68 PSMA-11 and F18 DCF PYL PSMA PET are FDA approved. Here, you see physiologic radio tracer distribution with different PSMA radionuclides. From these agents, PSMA-1007 shows minimal urinary bladder excretion, which could be a potential advantage to other PSMA agents. However, F18 PSMA-1007 reported to have higher false positive rates compared to gallium-68 PSMA-11. There are more benign conditions with uptake at PSMA-1007, including bones, lymph nodes, and ganglia. In these images of PSMA-1007, you can see uptake at ganglia, inguinal lymph nodes, and ribs that are more pronounced or avid that may cause false positive results. Here is a figure from a study comparing gallium PSMA-11 to F18 DCF PYL. This study showed similar normal tissue distribution with subtle differences between these two imaging agents. Overall, when you look at the literature, currently available PSMA PET agents are equivalent to each other for metastasis assessment as well as for selection of patients for radioligand therapy. PSMA PET imaging. How do we assess patients for radioligand therapy now? Lutetium PSMA 617 has recently been approved by FDA for treatment of metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer patients who have been previously treated with toxin-based chemotherapy and androgen receptor pathway inhibitors. PSMA imaging selection criteria used in phase 3 vision trial has been accepted as imaging review criteria. The vision criteria defines PSMA-positive disease as uptake greater than liver uptake in one or more metastatic sites. PSMA-negative is defined as 
PSMA uptake equal or lower than liver in any lymph node with short axis of at least 2.5 centimeter or solid organ lesion with short axis of at least 1 centimeter. Let's look at a couple examples. As you see, this patient has marked uptake at right femoral metastasis. The patient did not have any PSMA negative metastasis. Thus, he was eligible for therapy according to imaging criteria. However, this patient who has a large PSMA negative nodal metastasis is not eligible according to imaging criteria. Here is an example for a patient with excellent response to therapy. This is a 75-year-old metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer patient treated with six cycles of lutetium PSMA therapy. Initial PSMA imaging, post-therapy imaging after first and six cycles, as well as follow-up PSMA imaging four weeks after completion of therapy show excellent response to therapy. This is the image from our Australian colleagues from Peter Mac. Images of patients before and after lutetium PSMA therapy. You see remarkable response in these patients after treatment. This image was selected as image of the year at Society of Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging Annual Meeting in 2018. If we summarize, PSMA therapy has a high response rate with low toxicity and significant improvement of clinical symptoms with excellent tolerability by patients. Given high number of metastatic prostate cancer patients, expected lutetium PSMA cycles per year at US may reach to 150 to 160,000. To meet these demands in US, we need multiple fully functioning theranostic centers. What is the near future for lutetium PSMA therapy? Combination of radioligand therapy with other agents like radiosensitizers or immunotherapy. Another area is starting therapy at earlier stages, like before chemotherapy, and developing other therapy agents. These are a few items that I would like to mention that are in development. What if patients don't respond or stop responding to beta emitters? What do we do now? Although high response rates reported with lutetium PSMA, there are still about 30% of patients not responding or developing resistance to beta-emitter therapy. Could we consider alpha-emitters like actinium-2254 therapy? Yes. When you compare alpha-emitters, they have higher energy, shorter range, they induce more double DNA breaks, and they can target micrometastasis more efficiently compared to beta emitters like lutetium. Alpha emitters can be considered in patients with prior radioligand therapy failure, patients with diffuse bone marrow infiltration, however, limited availability, challenging radiochemistry and toxicity are currently limiting factors. Here is an example of a patient with response to actinium PSMA who had diffuse red marrow infiltration. 
there is theoretical advantage regarding hematological toxicity compared to lutetium PSMA. However, severe xerostomia could be a major issue in alpha emitter treatment. This is an important limited side effect for alpha therapies. This image shows a long duration of disease control in a patient with actinium PSMA therapy, suggesting promising results. I would like to briefly mention about a retrospective study from Germany. In this study, authors shared a pilot experience from a small group of patients. They used tandem therapy in patients who are not responding to lutetium PSMA monotherapy. This study suggested that when lutetium PSMA is not effective alone, by using tandem therapy with low activity actinium-225 PSMA plus full activity of beta emitter, safely enhanced response to PRLT while minimizing xerostomia. Here is an example for tandem therapy. Image A shows tumor spread before lutetium PSMA monotherapy. Image B shows progressive disease after three cycles of lutetium PSMA monotherapy. Image C shows partial remission after one cycle of actinium-225 PSMA and lutetium PSMA tandem therapy. Before conclusion slide, I would like to emphasize importance of teamwork for success at PRLT. PRLT truly requires multidisciplinary teamwork for success. As conclusions, PSMA imaging is superior to conventional imaging. Appropriate at unfavorable intermediate high-risk patients at biochemical recurrence after radical prostatectomy and radiation therapy. PSMA imaging is appropriate in selection for radioligand therapy. Current PSMA agents are comparable to each other for imaging. Currently, FDA approved F18 DCF PYL and gallium 68 PSMA 11 are suitable for patient selection for radioligand therapy. Alpha emitters can be considered, especially at diffuse bone marrow infiltration and prior beta emitter radioligand therapy failure patients. Now we will hear from Dr. Sartor about radioligand therapy targeting PSMA. Thank you, Dr. Kendi, and really a pleasure to be able to be here today. I'll be discussing the radioligands targeting PSMA, and I'm going to talk about some of the current challenges, the current data, and the opportunities. First of all, I think Dr. Kendi covered very nicely what Theranostics represents today. And if I were going to simplify it, I would simply say the ability to use a ligand, a linker, and a radionuclide for either diagnosis or therapy. And she covered very nicely about how we can use imaging to predict the presence of a target. And that presence of a target can then be potentially translated into therapy using a radionuclide. So this is a really exciting area right now. And one of the things I wanted to make sure that people were aware of 
is that PSMA is just one of the many targets that are under discussion in the theranostics field. I think we have lots of experience with neuroendocrine cancers, and in particular, those agents that target somatostatin type 2 receptors. And here we have proven success and FDA approvals. In addition, there are a whole variety of other targets that have been discussed, CD37, HER2-NU, HK2 in prostate, insulin-like growth factor 1, fibroblast-activated protein or FAP, CA9 in renal, and more. So today, it's really about PSMA, a transmembrane protein, the majority of which is on the extracellular surface, and a portion, by the way, of which is in the cytoplasmic domain. And it turns out that PSMA gene expression is very high in prostate, including prostate cancer, relative to other tissues. Now, it is not absolutely unique to prostate. It's present within the central nervous system. It's present within the proximal tubules. It can be present in neovasculature. But prostate is really the high level of expression, and that's what we're going to be exploiting. Now, in the theodostics paradigm, Dr. Kendi covered PSMA-PET, and this molecular imaging is really a disruptive force across the spectrum of prostate cancer. FDA approved in the context of either high-risk disease at the time of diagnosis or recurrent disease after definitive therapy, either radical prostatectomy or radiation. We also know that it can serve as a predictive biomarker in terms of systemic therapy with things like PSMA lutetium. So the whole concept of PSMA theranostics is built around seeing the tumor, treating the tumor, and understanding the diversity. Now, as Dr. Kendi mentioned, there is a little more to the story because not every tumor is PSMA PET positive. Nevertheless, it's a key tenant in our field. If you're going to treat with PSMA, you ought to be able to see it with PSMA PET. Now, we all know about the FDA approvals for DCF-PYL and PSMA-11, either F18 or Gallium-68, and this really sets the stage for the molecularly targeted isotopic therapy. And we have small molecules. There's also a lot of discussion around peptides and antibodies and maybe many bodies and even naked radionuclides. So there's a lot to talk about when it comes to this broad field of therapeutic aspects of theranostics. The PSMA binding ligands that we're going to be particularly discussing are PSMA 617 and PSMA INT, and both of these are being used therapeutically. Both of them have a chelator to which you can attack a therapeutic agent, and this therapeutic agent may be something like lutetium or actinium, and this ability to target the PSMA expression is, of course, critically important. Now, there are actually a lot of beta emitters in human studies. Lutetium is the one we're going to focus on today, but there's also been already a mention of alpha emitters such as actinium, and I'm going to cover a little bit about alpha emitters as well. Within the large number of beta emitters currently in human study, things like strontium-89, samarium-153 are actually FDA-approved for bone metastatic prostate cancer and for palliation. 
but they don't prolong survival. On the other hand, the PSMA glutation 177 does prolong survival, and that's very, very important. Now, if we were to go back to the beginning of PSMA-targeted therapy, it actually starts with a small molecule called MIP-1095. And MIP-1095 doesn't bind lutetium, it actually binds iodine. And the therapeutic aspects of this molecule were being addressed with I-131 in some early studies in Germany. And what I'll say is this helped get the field rejuvenated and excited about moving forward. And then the first lutetium-based therapies were actually done at Bad Burka by Richard Baum, and he published his experiences going way back to 2013. So even though it may appear as though PSMA-based theranostics is new, this work has been ongoing for a number of years, and in particular since 2013. In the German experience, I think it was very valuable to be able to compilate a whole series of German centers and to publish their data as a whole. And here you see Cambys Robar, senior author Bernd Krauss, looking at first cycle PSA declines, second cycle PSA declines on a whole wide variety of doses and schedules. And what you can see is you've got a lot of patients that are responding, of course, some that do not. One of the other interesting things about these early German studies was the fact that there was very little myelosuppression. The concern over using lutetium was that you would damage the bone marrow. But here on this slide from the Journal of Nuclear Medicine article in 2017, you can see that platelets, red cells, white cells really do not suffer much in the way after this therapy. So that was a very important find. Now, next where is a hats off to the Australian group, and the Australian group based at Peter Mac, partly led by Michael Hoffman, but a number of very important collaborators at Peter Mac, began to prospectively explore the PSMA 617 lutetium. Now, they chose their patients in a way that was a little more complex than just using PSMA uptake. They were also looking at FDG uptake and looking for concordance and discordance. If the PSMA was positive and there was no FDG uptake, well, that patient was fine. If the FDG was positive and there was no PSMA, well, that patient would not be treated with a PSMA ligand. And if there was discordance between the scans, then the eligibility was in question and typically for those individuals with FDG-positive lesions that were PSMA-negative, they did not want them to go on study. Now, this is the original prospective phase two data, and you can see that on the left-hand side, PSA response, 12 weeks from the first dose, is really quite good. The best PSA response is very strong. Median time to progression was about 6.3 months, and that's quite good. And I'll simply say that this was an important study defining the dose that was given, treating patients in a prospective manner. That in turn led the Australians to go to another trial. This was a randomized phase two that they call the therapy trial. 
And here they took individuals who were PSMA PET positive, did not have FTG discordant lesions, all of whom had progressed after docetaxel and a novel hormone, and randomized them to either lutetium or the cabazitaxel, the primary endpoint of PSA response. Well, it turned out that using the selection criteria used in this particular trial, that they screened 291 patients in order to enroll 200, but 91 patients were excluded, either for low PSMA expression or FTG discordant disease or a few other reasons. But you can see that low PSMA expression in 10%, 29 out of 291, and FTG discordant disease 51 out of 291. So there's a significant number of patients excluded from this particular trial. Now, this data has now been published in Lancet 2021, and you can see in this therapy trial that there is a superiority of the PSA declines with regard to PSMA lutetium as compared to cabazitaxel. But what we also know very recently and presented at ASCO 2022 is that the survival between cabazitaxel and lutetium were essentially identical. Now, this is a phase two trial. It was not really intended to be able to assess survival. And if you wanted to do formal trials for survival, you really would need larger numbers. But nevertheless, you could see in this particular trial, after three years, that there really was not a distinction between the survival, between the lutetium PSMA and the cabazitaxel. Now, I will say that there was less side effects with the PSMA lutetium, and the authors concluded that the PSMA lutetium is preferable given the superior adverse event profile. Now let's take a look at PSMA as a biomarker and the mechanism of action of radioligand therapy for metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. Prostate-specific membrane antigen, or PSMA, is a biomarker and transmembrane protein that is highly expressed on prostate cancer cells. PSMA has become an appealing diagnostic and therapeutic target for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, or MCRPC. PSMA can be detected in tumors with positron emission tomography, or PET. To determine a patient's PSMA status, PSMA PET is performed. First, a PSMA-targeted radiotracer is injected, which then attaches to PSMA on the surface of PSMA-expressing tumor cells. After this radiolabeling, a PSMA PET scan is obtained to depict and locate PSMA-positive tumor cells in the body, including any areas of metastases. The use of PSMA PET to confirm PSMA-positive MCRPC helps identify patients who may benefit from PSMA-targeted radioligand therapy. Once PSMA PET findings confirm PSMA-positive MCRPC, patients may be eligible for treatment with PSMA-targeted radioligand therapy. Radioligand therapy is composed of two components, a cytotoxic radionuclide and a PSMA-targeting ligand. PSMA-targeted radioligand therapy targets and binds to PSMA receptors on the surface of prostate cancer cells, including bone, nodal, and visceral metastases. After binding to PSMA-expressing cells, the radioligand undergoes endocytosis, is internalized into the cell, 
and dissociates from the PSMA receptor. Once inside the cell, the cytotoxic radionuclide emits ionizing radiation, which affects the cell and those surrounding it, causing single and double-stranded DNA breaks, which may lead to cell death. Lutetium Lu-177, vipivitide tetraxetan, is currently the only FDA-approved PSMA-targeted radioligand therapy. However, this and other PSMA-based therapies continue to be studied in MCRPC, including in earlier settings and with other ligands. We now are going to go on to a very important trial, the Phase three trial, and this trial is called the VISION trial. I was the co-PI along with Bernd Krauss, whom I mentioned earlier from Germany, and this was published June 23rd, leading to an FDA approval on March 23rd of 2022. But I should also make note of some supply chain problems that came in the United States on May 5th. So it's not all perfect here. Let's discuss the vision trial and how it was designed and what patients were included. First of all, everybody had to have metastatic CRPC by conventional imaging, and it had to be progressive. There had to be PSMA PET positivity with a gallium-68 PSMA-11 PET scan, and I'll come back to that in a second. There had to be treatment with at least one prior taxane, but up to two, and at least one prior novel hormone, such as abiraterone and salutamide, and an ECOG performance status of zero to two and a life expectancy of six months or more. The patients were randomized two to one to receive the lutetium plus standard of care or standard of care alone. And the standard of care selection was pre-specified by the investigators. By the way, I should mention this was a protocol-specified standard of care and typically would consist of either abiraterone or enzalutamide despite the prior exposure. There were alternate primary endpoints of RPFS and OS, radiographic progression-free survival, and a variety of secondary endpoints as well, and then a variety of stratification factors. So if we look at the selection by PSMA-PET, there were 1,179 patients assessed for eligibility, and a little over 1,000, 1,003 patients got the gallium-68 PSMA-11 PET scan. Of these patients, 87% met the PSMA-PET criteria. And what did that mean? They had to have a PSMA PET positive metastatic lesion with uptake greater than liver, and there was no size criteria for the PSMA PET positivity. They could have no PSMA negative visceral or lytic bone lesions greater than a centimeter. So remember, there's a CAT scan also being done. If you had a liver lesion that was 1.5 centimeters, and on PSMA PET, that was cold, and that meant less than liver, what you really needed to do was to exclude that patient. And the same thing was true for the lytic bone lesions. The same thing is true for PSMA-negative lymph node lesions greater than 2.5 centimeters. So very importantly, not only were patients chosen by PSMA-PET, they were excluded if they were PSMA-PET-negative and the CT scan showed a lesion. Now, shortly after accrual began, dropout problems were immediately evident in the control site. This was typically in sites where nuclear medicine docs were leading the trial. Patients were disappointed not to be receiving the PSMA lutetium, and it actually turned into a bit of a mess. Sites had to be closed. The remaining sites were educated more. The FDA was consulted, and the statistics had to be reassessed. And what this turns out 
And if you go to the literature and you look at the New England Journal, what you see is two sets of patients. All the patients who are randomized, and then a subsequent analysis for an image-based progression-free survival subset. All patients are 831, and the progression-free survival subset was 581. So two different sets of patients, but for survival, it was really critical to do the intent to treat. And you can see here, these patients were heavily pretreated. Many of the patients had had two or even more than two regimens of antigen receptor pathway inhibitors, abiraterone, enzalutamide, apalutamide, et cetera. And around 40% of the patients had two regimens of taxane-based chemotherapy. And the second taxane was almost always cabazitaxel. So these are very, very heavily pretreated patients. Now, what was found? Remember, there are two primary endpoints. Primary endpoint number one is overall survival. Hazard ratio 0.62. Confidence intervals not even close to one, 0.52 to 0.74. The radiographic progression-free survival, and this was by criteria that was specified by the Prostate Cancer Working Group 2 and 3, the hazard ratio was 0.4, a positive trial on either endpoint. And by the way, if you look at the overall survival in that smaller RPFS subset, it's positive with a hazard ratio of 0.63. And if you look at the RPFS in the overall survival subset with this large group of patients, you still end up positive. So it doesn't matter how you slice and dice the data. This is a positive trial. Now, when you look at overall survival, this is the forest plot. And what you can see is by far the majority of the points are to the left of the 1.0 line, meaning they favored Lutetium PSMA 617, but certain subsets were smaller and not able to be fully analyzed. You know, you can see that confidence intervals are large when the number of patients in the treatment group are small. But for instance, liver metastases, the hazard ratio was 0.87, not quite as good as those who had no liver metastasis. If you look at those less than age 65, it's a smaller subset. Hazard ratio 0.73 is good, 0.59 in those more than 65 years old or age 65. The Asian population was extremely small, only 20 patients. But there you can see that the hazard ratio is 1.04. I do not believe that is any relationship to lack of effect in Asians. I think it's just not poorly studied in the Asian population. Nevertheless, you can see that there is an overall survival benefit for all patients in most of the subsets clearly trend in the strong right direction. For PSMA declines, as shown here on the PSA waterfall plot, you can see PSA declines of more than 50% in 46% of the patients. Remember, this is not a therapy population. These patients all had cabazitaxel. The therapy randomized trial was randomized with cabazitaxel and no prior pretreatments. These are a different group of patients, and you have to be clear about that. In the control group here, 7.1% of the patients had a PSA decline of 50% or more. There was also tumor shrinkage. This was presented at ASCO by Michael Morris, and you could see that the CR rate for those receiving lutetium was about 9.2%, the PR rate about 418 
added together, about 50% of the patients that were assessable actually had a decrease in their measurable disease by criteria dictated from RESIST. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that when you look at whole body SUV mean, and this is looking at the totality of the tumor uptake, that there is a pretty good correlation between the higher PSMA uptake, and this is by the PSMA PET scan, and the RPFS. But if we look at the overall survival, the groups that were a little less avid by the SUV mean, and remember this is PSMA 11 SUV mean, that these were all pretty similar, whereas the highest quartile did extremely well, the median overall survival being 21.4 months for those with the highest PSMA uptake. If we look at the side effects from vision, fatigue, dry mouth, nausea, some anemia, back pain, and arthralgias, but please remember that the patients were observed for a longer period of time on the lutetium. They were alive longer and took longer to progress, so some of these differences may be in part due to the fact that patients were followed for a longer period of time. Nevertheless, dry mouth is an unequivocal side effect from PSMA lutetium. Some of these patients can have nausea, some can get anemia, some can be fatigued, and these are things that we need to be concerned about when treating our patients, as well as some thrombocytopenia. Now, what do we know from vision? We know the PSMA lutetium 617 is effective and well-tolerated in heavily pretreated patients. We know that in all likelihood, the trial would have been positive even without PSMA PET selection. We also know that nuclear medicine sites, not well partnered with oncology, had difficulty managing the control group, and I believe that multidisciplinary care is required. This therapy will be rapidly adopted after regulatory approvals, and we have that now, and likely it'll move earlier into the treatment paradigm, and there are trials looking at that now. Now, what do we not know from vision? I don't think we know yet the optimal PSMA PET selection criteria. We don't really know if FDG PET should be used. Interestingly, we don't know the optimal dose and schedule for this therapy. We don't fully understand the relationship between PSA progression, PSA response, and survival. But I'm telling you, preliminary data look fairly good, wait till ESMO. We don't know anything about retreatment at progression. We don't know about standard of care and to what extent standard of care really adds to the PSMA lutetium. It did look a little better for those being treated with the combination of the advanced hormonal agents plus lutetium as compared to lutetium alone, but that is a conjectural statement, not a definitive statement. We have trials that are ongoing in the pre-chemo space, but we don't know about that space yet. We don't know a lot about how we can combine this set of trials. Now, we do have some important trials in the metastatic CRPC setting. PSMA4, Splash, and Eclipse are all looking at metastatic CRPC, PSMA PET-positive patients who are going to be getting PSMA lutetium versus a second-line hormonal agent. And all of these trials are in accrual right now. We also know that there is a trial called PSMA Addition. And this is a prospective open-label study looking at hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, standard of care versus the PSMA lutetium plus standard of care. Very, very important trial for metastatic hormone-sensitive patients. And this trial is now ongoing. 
We have many questions about synergistic opportunities for radiopharmaceuticals. Number one, since the lutetium and other radiopharmaceuticals damage DNA, what would happen if you inhibited DNA repair pathways? What about a PARP inhibitor, an ATR inhibitor, an ATM inhibitor, a DNA kinase inhibitor? And we really don't know about synergy in this setting. We think that there could be synergy, and there are now phase one studies that are ongoing with the PARP inhibitors in particular, in combination with PSMA lutetium. There's also a question about antigen release from radiated tumors and potential synergy with immunotherapy. As it turns out, there are initial reports that look at the combination of PSMA lutetium and pembrolizumab, a PD-1 inhibitor in immunotherapy, but we don't really have comparative data, and I'm not willing to say at this point that this is better than PSMA lutetium alone. It's certainly better than pembrolizumab alone, but there could be some selection bias in the way the patients were chosen, so small phase twos always have to be interpreted with caution. Now, what about PSMA radiopharmaceutical studies with ligands other than PSMA 617? I mentioned the Eclipse trial and the SPLASH trial. Those are being conducted with PSMA INT, but there are also antibodies such as J591 and another antibody called PSMA TTC that have been looked at in phase one. And then in addition to PSMA INT, there are also other small molecules such as R2-1095, an agent called SAR-PSMA or ITM-22 and NG-001, and there are a variety of isotopes. And so this is an interesting and rapidly evolving space. Now, it turns out that Dr. Kendi had mentioned the alpha particles. I also wanted to mention alphas. This harkens back to the use of radium-223, which can prolong survival in metastatic prostate cancer, but here you're targeting only the bone. And because radium only goes to bone, the tumors in the other locations cannot be neglected. Yet, that's what we have with radium therapy alone. Now, there are a whole series of alphas that are under investigation. Dr. Kendi had mentioned actinium-225, and that's one of my favorites as well. We've also done studies with thorium-227, by the way, radium-223 is very, very difficult to chelate, so we don't have a way of chelating radium at this time. But there are studies that are being planned with lead-212. There are studies that have been performed with bismuth-212. Terbium-149 and astatine-211 are also of potential interest. Now, it turns out that PSMA-targeted alpha therapy with actinium-225, and here is PSMA-617, has the capacity to be very, very active in a subset of patients, but salivary gland toxicity has been rate limiting. There's also data from South Africa, and this is from University of Pretoria by my Sedefke, looking at the actinium-225 PSMA-617. It is highly active, but again, there's some salivary issues, and these were not necessarily refractory patients. These were patients who may not have previously received chemotherapy or novel hormones. There was a mention of alpha's post-beta failure, and here's an example from the German group at Heidelberg using alphas after therapy had failed with PSMA lutetium and getting an excellent response. And looking at combinations, which was also mentioned by Dr. Kendi, 
alphas and betas in combinations, isotopes in various hormonal combinations, PARP inhibitors and other inhibitors of DNA repair. There's been an interesting concept around isotopes in high-dose testosterone, isotopes in 5-FU infusion, which is radiosensitizer, isotopes in immunotherapy, which I mentioned. So lots of ways to project this into the future. These alpha-beta combos are particularly interesting. Here you can diminish the salivary damage and hopefully provide some better effect than just the beta alone, but we need to think in more detail. One of the things that I think needs to be addressed is why isotopes? I think you can tremendously accelerate drug development when you can see your target and look at the ratio of tumor uptake to non-tumor tissue. You can image your target. And then when you treat, it's not just the individual cell, but also what I call the umbra and penumbra, the area around the drug deposition site. This helps to overcome heterogeneity. When you use an isotope, you get into the tumor and you can potentially kill the cell to which it binds, but you may also kill surrounding cells, including the microenvironment and the stroma. Metastatic prostate cancer is a heterogeneous group of diseases, but radiation can kill them all. And that is one of the reasons why I've devoted a substantial portion of my own career to try to improve patient care through the use of molecularly targeted radiation. I might like to mention a brief case that I think is quite interesting. As with any therapy, there are patients who do well and patients who do less well. One of the more interesting patients I've seen and just completed three cycles of therapy with PSMA lutetium as a patient who had a somatic BRCA2 mutation detected on his circulating tumor DNA. After his initial response, he had about a 90% decline in PSA. And after two treatments, he had a 99% decline in PSA, and it was now less than one. As it turned out, we were looking at serial circulating tumor DNA markers, and what we could see was the disappearance of the BRCA2 somatic clone. Now, we've long known that BRCA2 mutations predispose to DNA damaging agents, and this type of therapy is going to be exploited with the use of things like carboplatin, cyclophosphamide. But now we have clear evidence that lutetium-177 may be especially active in those individuals with BRCA mutations, which in turn predispose to damage from DNA-damaging agents. So an interesting little vignette. One of the things that I think is important is a team-based approach toward theranostics when you're treating the advanced patient with prostate cancer. It turns out that advanced prostate cancer patients have many potential complications. They have issues with pain, anemia, thrombocytopenia, may have difficulty with bone metastasis, and as we have done at Tulane, I have found it most productive to work as a team with my colleagues 
And I wonder if you might mention how that works at Mayo Clinic, because I know that you guys have a fantastic team up there as well. Thank you, Dr. Sartor. I echo with what you mentioned, especially the care of the patients at advanced stages with multiple comorbidities. You have to have the teamwork at any point, but that is most important in this patient population. And at Mayo Clinic, since the start of vision trial, we formed already a team that we are working together, collaborating together. And this is going on after FDA approval as well. This team includes people from nuclear medicine with dedicated interest to nuclear therapies. This includes people from urology, radiation oncology, and also uh, team members from medical oncology, as well as if needed from surgery, nephrology, and orthopedics, depending on patients' condition and the needs. And we decided to have bi-weekly meetings to discuss patients. In our initial few meetings, we decided to have presentations about the treatment and we make our protocols together and we decided to move forward everything together within these meetings with decisions made together. And after that, now we are reviewing cases with that needs discussions in these meetings with our colleagues together. This meeting is led by nuclear medicine team, but everybody from all the other departments are joining. And we approach these patients need care from all of us. And it is not like a one-sided approach. It is just combination of all the expertise coming together with the patient in the center. The patients who are, these patients are coming after heavy treatments with other therapies and with the chemotherapy and radiation therapy, immunotherapy. And we definitely look at the medications and recent history of Sofigo history. And we go through these in details. In addition, some of the patients, the burden of the disease can be concerning for possible fractures or spinal canal compromise. We always review, we have some of our patients who needed extra review by orthopedics team to make sure we can proceed with the therapy and if needed to prevent any impending fractures, if there is any intervention is needed, we get consults for these patients. In addition, sometimes leaf nodes and some of the pelvic disease may cause urinary tract obstruction. You have to be careful about the uh, kidney function as well as you should check the patency of the ureters, making sure there is no hydronephrosis. If there is hydronephrosis, you need to fix that with nephrostomy or ureteral stand placement before moving with the treatment. These are a few things I wanted to mention. You're very fortunate to be able to have such a multidisciplinary team. And of course, I think we all know the reputation of Mayo Clinic and excellence in patient care. So thank you for sharing. Dr. Sartor, thank you. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.